The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let me, uh, let me jump in a few introductory comments. Uh, first, the title. Where'd that come from? All theology is practical theology. Now, if you're anything like me, when you, if you free associate to the word theology or the word doctrine, the, the immediate word that, this, that pops to mind is not practical. It's about 20 zillion other words. And maybe, maybe, maybe not practical would appear somewhere way down the list. I think typically the reputation of theology is as being something somewhat detached somewhat distracted and remote from real life. And, and I would say that in one sense, uh, that is true, and part of the thing, many of the things we'll talk about tonight are intended to remediate that and even critique that uh, remoteness that can so often happen. But I want us to actually start in a different place and actually say, you know, even those things that seem so odd and offbeat and abstract and sort of off in the clouds, when you actually think about them more closely, they are in their own way practical. By that, I mean this. All theology is answering questions. Okay? It is always answering questions. Now, what makes something remote is it's not the question you're asking. right? There may be massive tomes of theology written in polysyllabic uh, you know, abstractions, and they don't do much for you because they aren't answering your question. But I guarantee you there's at least five people in the world who were asking that question, which is why the fat book in polysyllabic language got written. It's, uh, theology is always answering questions. It, it, it actually, the, the impulse to think about, what does this mean? You know, what, what's going on? How do I make sense of it? How do I organize it? It's a, it's a complicated book. You can't always put it on the table all at the same time. You've got to have some way to, and how does it address contemporary questions when, you know, this is written to a bunch of peasants and fishermen and, and goat herders. And so what does this have to do with, you know, the modern medical system or, or, or uh, what it means to, to live in a, in a, in a, a, a government that has you know, tax-funded public education. And so you're, you're driven to say, what is, by, you're driven by questions. You're driven by felt needs. You're driven by, what's going on here? You know, how do I make sense of this? Or I don't understand something. I, you know, I read Ephesians. I see all these amazing things about God and the Holy Spirit. Then I look at the, my church and I go, gap, you know, major gap. How, how, do I put, how do I put this together? How do I, how do I make sense of, of my world? Or how do I make sense of a Bible passage that seems very difficult? It, uh, what does that mean? Or maybe from a different angle, you, you could say, well, what does God have to say about issue X? You know, what does God have to say about education you know, the, and the variety of options? When we know that God in the original didn't say anything about the kinds of educational options that face us today. But nonetheless, God does speak to our lives. So what might he say? See, that, that kind of question, those, that sense of need, perplexity, what's going on here, it drives you to do this thing we call theology, which means, you know, literally God says, you know, what does God say? And you think it through. Or sometimes what, what propels theological reflection is you hear something, you don't agree with it, or it sounds funny to you, or maybe downright wrong and, and dangerous. And 
But how do you know it's wrong? How do you know it's not true? And you're forced to go back and to think and to, to, to dig and to, to uh, write and so forth. So the context in which theology in all its forms always emerges is some sense of disputes and debates and needs and problems and struggles and controversy and, and perplexities and how do you handle that and those sorts of things. It, uh, in that sense, then, just even on the surface, all theology is practical. It is attempts to reflect on what God has written. Now, point two on this, though. Okay? Clearly, there are many forms of theology that are asking questions that not very many people are asking, right? There are, you know, there are literally fat books where literally probably five people care <laughs> about that. You know, the, the classic, you know, how many angels on the head of a pin sort of thing where, you know, we aren't really exercised about that question. But people in another time and place were. You know, it was a, it was a legitimate question of the time. It, uh, it raises a question, though, uh, as, you, as you think about all theology being practical, it raises a question about what are there any guidelines beyond just our own unchained imagination or perplexities uh, or, or questions that ought to guide it? And I'd submit to you that there are. That one of the things that ought to guide our, our, our thinking about Scripture and our organizing it and packaging it and, and comprehending it is the fact that there are certain questions that the Bible itself is concerned to answer. And there are other kinds of things that people, in their own curiosity or out of disputatiousness or out of, you know, maybe legitimate concerns, but uh, that may be questions that we go to Scripture, that Scripture is not really all that concerned to give us an answer about, but those very passages we're looking at are meant to also define the questions. And I think as you start to let Scripture define the questions as well as the answers, you start to move increasingly, vividly, into, into a, an understanding of what theology ought to be that is vividly practical. Because what you find as you look at Scripture itself is that there is, there is nothing that is not practical theology. In fact, that I'll, 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 this, I'll throw this out, as a, I'll throw this out as, a, as, as a banner statement, that the Bible itself is practical theology. That's what it is. Practical theology is talking and trying to influence people, and it, it's from me to you about that in this situation. It's from God. It's, 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 it's mixing it up with where real people are living and thinking uh, and, and, uh, and what motivates them and so forth. Let me take a, a, a very simple example of this. That, uh, you know, we've all, we've all of us who have been uh, in Protestant, conservative Protestant circles have been exposed to uh, various debates about eschatology, you know, which is essentially, you know, last things. What's the timetable of the Lord's return? What should we expect? Well, how significant is it that there's a nation of Israel? How significant is it that, you know, that the Soviet Empire collapsed? Is it significant at all? Is it, you know, how significant do you do you weigh, you know, various you know natural disasters or and so forth? Where are we in history? And one of the things that those sorts of questions about understanding our times or trying, maybe you've heard some teaching on a timetable of events and correlations made and you're trying to maybe agree with that and you want to make sure it's true or maybe you disagree or it sounds funny to you and you want to, you want to make, find out if it's false even though it uh, was certainly plausible, the person that taught it. Uh, those sorts of things can, can, can lead to an attempt to create an, a view of eschatology that's fundamentally about timetable. 
And so that is the issue. Are you dispensational? Are you premillennial classically? Are you amillennial? Are you postmillennial? And they're all fundamentally timetable issues. No, they're not irrelevant. They all have very, they all in their own way trickle down into how you live your life. You know, how much you care about this world. How, you know, they do have various practical implications, usually somewhat at arm's length though, or by implication, you know, a few notches down the, bumping down the road. But it is interesting. When you actually look and you, at the passages in the scripture that speak about the end of all things, the return of Christ and the day that we see his face, the day of the judgment when human life is revealed to be fundamentally and finally significant, every life significant, because every choice counts and every word counts and every word out of your mouth is, is known and it's sized up and it's weighed and every word out of every person's mouth, every radio show, every conversation, every way you talk to your kids, every, every interaction, husband, wife, roommate, it's all evaluated. It's all seen and heard and noted. And one day, stand, the books are opened, as it were. And you start to think about it that way. And you start to realize that the Bible discusses eschatology in a way that is, is asking a very different set of questions as you climb into the passages that speak about the return of Christ, the end of the world, the day of judgment, these kinds of things. I'll just, I'm just going to paint panorama here. Um, but uh, I'll just give you a couple of broad strokes. You don't have to look these up. I'll just, I'll just allude to them. I'm not going to camp out in any of these. We'll, we'll be camping out somewhere else a little bit later this evening. Uh, one extended passage on last things is the first two chapters of, of Thessalonians, of Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 1 and 2. Now, and there's been lots of debate about, you know, timetable sorts of things, like who is the man of lawlessness and all this kind of thing. But you know what question that passage itself tells you to ask? It tells you to ask the question, how do you understand suffering? And how do you find comfort in suffering? And it's very interesting that that, that, is the, that, that theme structures the entire discussion. It's, it is a... It is a it is a discussion of the fact that God will consider you worthy of his kingdom for which you are suffering. He will give you relief, you who are being afflicted, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels and flaming fire. There's a day when he will come to be glorified among his people and marveled at. And this is to you who have believed. And it goes on and on. You know, and you finally get to the end of the passage at the end of uh, chapter 2. And it says this, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. That was the purpose in which the whole discussion was couched. And again, I'm not saying it's irrelevant what view of timetable you take. I mean, it's hold your view with, with conviction. You know, I do. But make sure that what comes first is in a case like that, is, is that the actual way you think about eschatology it ends up being less of a timetable issue and more of a, it's a pastoral issue, it's a life issue, it's a practical theology issue. In fact, I've been involved in counseling ministry for over 20 years, and I can say that there has never been a person in those 20 years that I counseled where it seemed like the main problem was their eschatology. You know? 
I've, I've had people who wanted to fight with me about eschatology because they disagreed with mine and wanted to push theirs on me. But they, I remember one case very vividly like that. There's only been two or three over all the years. It was a man who was visiting prostitutes once a month. Isn't that convenient? We'll argue about eschatology, you know, so we don't have to talk about this, you know, something which falls far short of every good work and word, doesn't it? it uh, you know, and clearly, the issue of eschatology, the place where it really has a payoff when you come to people's lives, is, is there hope in the midst of sufferings? You know, as, I, as I face hard situations, you know, my child is sick, or it doesn't seem like my spouse loves me, or am I going to be single for life, or, or I face a debilitating illness, that I, I, there's no end in sight to this. It's that kind of question that you'll see consistently that the view of the return of Christ is held out there as something that is on the far side of whatever rough road the people of God have to go through. It, uh, it's one of those ways that, uh, that you might say one of the, there's a lot of ways you can summarize the entire Bible, but one of, the, one of the simplest ways would be that little phrase from Habakkuk that gets picked up a couple times in the New Testament, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. And see, so what that's meaning in, in, in the particular context there in Habakkuk, he is about to get smoked, right? The fig tree will not blossom. There's no fruit on the vine. There's no cattle in the stalls. We will starve, right? This is, this is it's pretty poetry, but terrible life, isn't it? We're going to face a great devastation. Our faces will be grounded. We'll, we'll be ground into the gravel, and the boot of the oppressor will be on us. And, in the, and, and, and Habakkuk is crying out, Lord, how can you do this to us? I mean, we're sinful, but the people you're using to judge us are 20 times worse than us. How can you do it? And God says to Habakkuk, the righteous will live by faith. And he tells them that one day his oppressors will be destroyed. And then the whole last chapter of Habakkuk is a prayer. And it's a prayer as Habakkuk is the first you know, 20 verses or so, 15 verses is, is about God and the day that God will come. He'll, he will right all wrongs. And then he gets to the end of the chapter, and he's trembling. You know, he's, he's, he's saying, uh, uh, he, he's facing things that, that just, in my inward parts tremble, that's at the sound of what's coming, my lips quiver, decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. The people are going to arise who will invade us, and the fig tree won't blossom, you know, and he runs down the list. And then he gets to the end, Yet. I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. You know, so it's really Habakkuk's version of Job's, you know, though he slay me, I will trust in him. It's Habakkuk actually having heard the message from an, an, a, you know, a previous conversation that righteous will live by faith. And he's now, as you see, walked out there. He is the righteous and he is living by faith as he's looking to the future, which is what it's all about. You know, I'm, Habakkuk is a book about eschatology. It's a book about what's not yet happened. It's a book about living in the light of the future. And, uh, and you pick it up. You look at uh, Romans 1.17, which quotes Habakkuk, you know, the righteous will live by faith. And there it has a very different reference. The object of your hope. The object of what's, on, what's outside of you, and it's off over there. And there what it is is the work of Christ, to die for your sins, to gain you a righteousness, to love you, to make you his own, to, 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 to lift you from the grave. The righteous will live by faith. And it's 
there the, we as you know, Reformation, you know, October 31st, this is the part that we most often think about, you know, the, the banging to the wall, the 95 theses, the, it's justification by faith. It's the righteous live by faith because they trust another to die for them, to live for them, to give them his righteousness and so forth. And that little phrase in Habakkuk, which initially had nothing to do with that part of relationship to God, is now applied in a different way. As, and again, it's something that ultimately is outside of our sight, isn't it? We don't see it. We don't see Christ. We don't see the end of the struggle with sin. We live in the midst of sin and death. We live in a world that to all appearances is still cursed. We live in a world where the battle of sin is in our own hearts. We live in a world where we pick up the newspaper and there are stories that if we have any kind of sensitivity, we, we can't read them. They are so horrible, the things that people do to other people. And the righteous will live by faith. There is a day when the battle is over. There's a day where sin gets its due, either in Christ or in the, in the person of the, the perpetrator of iniquity. And the righteous live by faith. Where that gets picked up, third, the other time it gets quoted in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 10, very end of Hebrews 10. The righteous will live by faith. And there it's actually reflecting back more on the original Habakkuk meaning. It's the introduction to that whole Hebrews 11, the, the, of the, uh, the roll call of those who live by faith. And in every case, they were looking for something they didn't yet get. There was something God would do for them, but it wasn't yet here. It had not yet arrived. The righteous will live by faith. And that's a picture there. Some of them experienced blessings during their lives. Others of them were cut in two, right? They were killed, they were murdered, they died in hope. The righteous will live by faith. And that theme just breathes through. And that, See, it's that, it's that kind of thing that as you look at the eschatology of Hebrews and the eschatology of Romans and the eschatology of Habakkuk, the eschatology of the whole Bible, you realize that the whole Bible is structured around the righteous will live by faith. And that there's this, this, this looking through what is in front of our eyes to something we do not see, that ul- its ultimate revelation lies ahead of us. Interestingly, even in Romans, which is teaching on justification by faith, the, 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 our reconciliation to God where we are delivered from God's wrath, the great example that's used a couple of chapters later is Abraham. And it's, again, it, kind of like Habakkuk, it's a different promise in which Abraham lived for. It wasn't about being justified. It was about having a child, wasn't it? But again, see that, that picture of God promised a child but we're barren. And then we go through decades of barrenness. See, it's they're just live by faith. It's that same, that the principle is everywhere. God makes promises, we don't see them. The righteous live by faith. And so Abraham becomes an example in his venue, just as Habakkuk is in his. And, and you could really, as I said, you could run through the whole Bible and say, you know, the whole book is about this, isn't it? It's all about something we don't yet see. And there have been times where Earlier hopes came to pass. Abraham hoped, and it did come to pass in his lifetime. And the, 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 old, the entire Old Testament longed and yearned for a day when sins would really be forgiven and a Messiah would come, and, and it did come. You know, Hebrews 11 says, you know, all these died in hope, but they, expecting the better thing. But we, we have seen it. And yet, we who have seen it, we still haven't, you know, we've seen it, but it, we too the by faith, it's still future. Eschatology, it's something that, that uh, is intended then, as you, as you look at Second Thessalonians, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to let you live by faith through tough circumstances. 
In Ephesians 5 and Galatians 6, there is eschatology happening. But there, it's a different message. It says, let no one deceive you. Don't be tricked. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these things are just very typical human darkness, aren't they? Just, just selfish, ugly, lustful, angry life playing out there. Don't be fooled. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. See, the, the, the purpose, the, the question that eschatology invites us to ask is an extremely practical question. It's meant to right, wake up call. Don't, be, don't drift. Don't fall asleep. Eschatology is doing that to us. There's the purpose. You look at 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. It's all about eschatology. It's all about the, the, it's all about the fact that we live in bodies that are failing, right? This mortal flesh, it is dying. We are vessels of clay. We are, we are afflicted. There's these, but these afflictions, in a, in a certain funny way, as painful as they are, they are called slight and momentary in comparison to something we don't see, right? A weight of glory beyond all comparison that lies, again, it lies, see, that's eschatology, that there's a weight of glory beyond all comparison because we believe that, we hope in that, we want that, we see it by faith, which is not in front of our eyes. We, we have hope. We're able to go through things that may be very, very difficult in our lives. And the passage continues on, and it, and it says things like, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's eschatology, isn't it? It's, it's what's going to happen. And what, is that, what effect does that have on us? Well, we make it our aim to please him. It's, a, it's a, you know, the fact that something is going to happen. We will appear before him who loved us in, as, as, to be evaluated. It springs up. You know, I, I want to please you. I want to let my life be good. Let my life be what it should be before you. I, I want to, you know, to pick up then First John, same, same kind of things played about, that we not be ashamed, end of chapter 2, beginning of 3, that we would not shrink back in shame at his appearing. But when he appears, we'll be like him. You know, the race will be run. There's another part of eschatology. There it's giving you the hope that, that one day the struggle with indwelling sin is gone. Beloved, you know, we are the children of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him, We'll be like him. Race run. See, eschatology given. Pastoral purposes, things that affect our lives, things that, 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 that bring us joy, bring us hope, cause us to repent of our sins, cause us to grow in love and concern for other people. And we could go on and on and on. It, uh, you, you see here in that kind of example that the Bible itself, it, it, the Bible is practical theology. And I'm not arguing by that that it's not you can't ask some of those other questions. I think you know, there's a place to ask the timetable question. But we also want to ask, we, want, we must never let the timetable question make us lose sight of the actual question that the very passages themselves are intending to answer. That's a, that's a big-time problem, often, in more academic theology or in a lot of the images we have of theology that, have, that lead it to be abstract. Because true theology is... It's, it's about people, isn't it? It's about life. It's about you. It's about your circumstances. It's about what's happening. It's about the meaning of life. Let me run another little comment bias here. It's uh, a little shift of direction. Where do we get our theology? We get our theology from Scripture, don't we? The revelation of God. 
what is the Bible? What is the Bible? What does it mean to study the Bible? How does one pull out of the Bible things that illumine your mind and illumine your worldview and make sense of life and so forth? And, it, and it's helpful to stop for a minute and, okay, all of our studies, our reflection, our, our Bible study, our more formal study, it's about the Bible, isn't it? The Word of God. But think how curious this is. Our, our study is about something that what this something is, is somebody else's take on you. Think about it that way. The very thing you're studying is someone else's take on you. That's what it is, right? It's, it's, you're, we're studying someone else's purposes in us, in the world, at all levels, you know, from creation to the, the, the bulk of humanity to the, the lost to the saved to you as an individual at every level, to us, you know, us as local churches, at every level. It's someone else's take on human life. It's someone else's purposes with human life. It's someone else's initiative into human life. That's what the very thing we're studying is. You might say, we're looking at it, but it's looking back. <laughs> Maybe that would be a way of saying. We think we're studying it. It's actually studying us, you might say. It's, it's meant to put us under the MRI. It's meant to change us. It's the revelation of the Redeemer who comes in to rearrange the architect, you know, rearrange the furniture, uh, do remodeling, you know, bulldoze down a section of the house, rebuild it. It's, that's the very thing we're studying. So, the, so as we're, we're studying something which is actually, in, in one way of looking at it, it's what someone else is thinking about us, right? It's what someone else is doing, the mind of Christ, the activity of God, the activity of the Holy Spirit, hence the, the tightest possible link between Holy Spirit and Word in the way that the Bible as the word of the spirit presents itself now a lot of implications of this so i'll just throw, spin out a couple one is one of them is this that no one ever reads the bible including you and me no one ever reads the bible without either being them them being hard to it or soft there's all see there's always the, the kinds of things it talks about us is that we are either always hard or soft. There, there's a sense where God is always either being concealed, concealing himself from us in our hardness and blindness, or he is being revealed to us and in us and through us, through our softness, our seeing, our hearing, ears. You're, we're studying something that, that is uh, it's either veiled or, or open, and that too has huge effects on theological writing, doesn't it? Because there are many, it's an obvious thing, but it's worth saying at least once, I'm not going to camp here, but there's bad theology, right? There's false theology, there's misleading theology, because there's theology which is essentially a reflection of being blind and hard and having thought that I could stand in judgment on the one who is revealing himself to us and not that it is he who is judging me and am I found wanting or am I found faithful? Am I found seeing or blind? Am I hearing or am I deaf? What that issue is always going on. Another another kind of implication I'll spin out here. Westminster has these two curious mottos, which you you've probably encountered if you're uh, you know get any literature from Westminster. Uh, master one word and train experts in the Bible. You know, probably most of you've heard one or both of those mottos on occasion. And they're good mottos. I mean, they, they capture some very important things. But it's also worth turning the mottos on their head.
for a moment, right? Yes, master one word. Really get to know this. But remember, it's a word that masters you, right? It's, 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 it's like God turns the tables on, on us in that sense. It's a, it's a word that masters us. And if we just left master one word to itself, we'd be presumptuous. We don't master it, do we? We are mastered by it. And if, if we have maintained any softness, any unveiling, God is revealing himself to us rather than concealing himself from us, even in our great accumulation of knowledge and, and history and, and knowledge of doctrines and arguments and so forth. We're the training experts in the Bible. Great. You know, let's become experts in the Bible. That's why we're here. It's one of the intentions of this lecture series. But we also want to, it's worth our remembering that the Bible is expert in human nature. Right? The Bible is an expert in you. The Bible is an expert in the person sitting next to you, in the people you live with. That it's the mind of the one who searches hearts, to put it in the language of Scripture often uses. It's, it's the gaze of the judge, the life changer, the life giver, the discipler, the sustainer. Um, worth thinking about that. That it's a, as we think about doing our theology as we seek to reflect on scripture that we would never lose sight of the fact that there is another who is reflecting on us at every point our thinking our actions our attitudes and so forth but, uh, i would like us to then spend some time in a way digging in a little more depth in an example digging an example an example will go to scripture okay Scripture is the, it's the well, it's the mind of the Lord. And I want us to think for a minute uh, about a particular psalm, Psalm 131. So there's only a couple of chapters of the Bible that are shorter. So three verses, about six lines, real short little passage. Uh, in fact, why don't you just listen? Don't, don't, don't bother to look it up. L listen, let me, let me say it to you, okay? Here's how it goes. Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty and I do not go after matters that are too great and too difficult for me surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child on his mother like a weaned child on me is my soul Israel hope in the Lord now and forever that's scripture, isn't it? That's, that's the word of God. It, uh, and what is that doing? Is that, what's being said there? What's coming at us there? Now, there's many different ways we could come at this, but uh, the, uh, let me just unpack a couple of them. One is that um, this is very interesting, that this piece of practical theology this, this thing intended to change us, change you, change me, change the person sitting next to you. It, it's actually the first two-thirds of it is a, you're actually eavesdropping in somebody else's thought life. Isn't that amazing? It is a, it's a holy eavesdropping. And that you are hearing the inner workings. In the first place, this is called the Song of Ascents of David. The inner workings of the person who is called a man after God's own heart. You're hearing how he's processing life. You're hearing how he, who he's talking to, how he's thinking about himself, how he's making sense of life, what he's doing in his inner life. 
And we could actually up the ante a notch and say, because all of the Psalms are not only windows into their original author, they're windows into Christ's life. They were actually hearing the inner workings of Jesus Christ himself. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud. I don't set myself up against anything. I'm not superior. I'm not aspiring for all kinds of things that, of my own creation. My eyes are not haughty. I'm not looking down on people. I'm entering people's lives. You know, I am that, you know, one of the, that most amazing thing about our Lord, that he can actually say of himself, I am meek and lowly in heart, come to me. You know, he invites the little people, the weak. You, you, again, you think about this with, the way we often, theology often seems like the endeavor of the big people, like the smart people, the people with lots of degrees. But the Lord of the universe comes down and he's not haughty. He's not, all, he, he knows it all. I mean, he made it all, right? He made the atoms. He understands how nuclear physics works. He, but he's not haughty. He lays it aside. He enters into, he becomes, takes the form of a servant, enters into our experience, tempted like as we are tempted, but without sin. Gets his hands dirty, touches lepers, reaches the poor. We're looking into his mind, you know. I do not go after matters that are too great or too difficult for me. I don't pursue what I shouldn't be pursuing. I don't try to control things I'm not meant to control. It, uh, and then the, uh, one of the ways I've thought about that is you could say that, that w- when in our pride and our haughtiness and our going after matters too great, you can say one of the things we try, we try to do, it's, it's as though we, we, we set up in our lives, you could call them ladders to nowhere. They're like ladders against blank walls. You know, they don't actually go to a floor. They, they have no end point. The only thing you can do is fall off them. And people live their whole lives climbing these ladders to nowhere you know, and falling. Or in Shakespeare, a merchant of Venice, Bassani, had a great way, a great image for this. He called it, people climb stairs of sand in their lives. Stairs of sand that people live for. And you see it, don't you? I mean, you see it in... You see it in yourself, for starters. I mean, you can run through the rest of the world, but these things that we erect, these ladders to nowhere, they, they really, they don't actually end up with anything that has life in them. They misdefine life. They define value and stigma, you know, success and shame, good and evil, desirable and, and, and abhorrent. But they're in all these ways that actually have no cash value at the end of the day. You know, like, and there's the obvious ones, but the obvious ones tend to be also where we get stuck. You know, things like, the neighborhood we live in, or what our looks are, or how healthy we are, or what a good athlete we are, or how big our church is, or you know how successful our career is, or you know what our kids look like, and whether they're you know better than somebody else's kids, or whether they're behaved. It, it ladders to nowhere that that we we somehow think we rank ourselves on those things. And uh, we're all adults, but let me just. Uh, one of the things the Bible says is that one of the great ways to really get a feel for people is to think about teenagers. You know, and that so we're, we're told in Timothy to flee youthful lust because there's something about, about young people. It just, it's all out there. Let me just, I, I got, I've got a bunch of teenagers. I've, uh, and I, I've hanged some in their culture. And I, let me just give you a sort of a, let's climb into the thought processes that are not Psalm 131, right? They're a different it's a different psalm. There's a different music playing here, you know, different set of things. It, uh, and we'll go on two sides. You know, on the one side, the, uh, you know, I'm, ri- I'm riding high. You know, I've been recruited by college. Early accept, early decision. You know, waiting to hear. 
on my first joy, it got rejected, you know, anxious. Am I ugly? You know, my nose too big, ears stick out, got pimples, you know, pond scum is a higher form of life than me, you know, that, uh, it, it, on the other side, I am so good looking, I'm so much better looking than you, and you are so poor, and I've got such nice clothes, and you are such a slob, and, and, uh, you know, my figure's nice, and my hair's nice, and you're just, you know, why'd you bother to get out of bed this morning? She's ugly, and, and so's he, and he's a nerd, and I'm so stupid, I failed again. I'm so smart. I'm smarter than those people. I got a 4-0, and he's such a moron, and I don't know what to say. I just get frozen in conversations. I, it's scary. I get paralyzed. At, uh, well, my opinion is, I just, let's lay it out there, you know, this is what I think, and uh, how will I do? You know, will they like me? Will I be a success? I'm kind of afraid of them, and I nailed it, you know, in your face, you know. I do it. I can do it. I, does he like me? Does she like me? No. Will I get a date? Will I go to the prom? Will I ever get married? If he doesn't like me, he's a real dope. You know, I'm, a, I'm a fine. You know, I'm, I'm worth getting. You know, or I like him. You know, I think I'll you know make a play for him. Or you know, I like her. I'm gonna go hit on her and, and you know make her my girlfriend. And uh, yeah, I'm so inferior. I feel like so. I feel so bad. I, I'm, I'm, you know. God wasted his atoms on me. He could have built vinyl instead. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm, I am just so good. I'm just God's gift to mankind. It's uh, superior, advantageous. Uh, will I get sick? Will I die? Will I go crazy? Will my life disintegrate? I'll never die. My agenda. Here's my game plan. You know, and we I, we could go on and on, couldn't we? It's noise, right? Noisy internal world. And you can look at those kinds of things and ladders to nowhere, stairs of sand, things that people are climbing up and what they create out of it. it uh, a friend of mine captured as well as, an image as well as anything I've ever heard. She was a woman with a lot of inner noise. A lot of, wasn't Psalm 131. You know, it wasn't, surely I've composed and quieted my soul. It was, it was busy, it was anxious, it was judgmental, it was irritable, it was depressive, it... Uh, it, uh, and she, she said one day, you know, I don't have any peers. There's nobody in my life that I actually look eye to eye with. It's like I have a few people, they are pedestal people. I look up at them. They, see, they're further up the ladder in some, whatever scale, you know, looks, money, education, whatever was the, you know, success and profession. There's a few pedestal people, and she kind of trembles in their presence, and, you know, they walk on water, and and stand on a pedestal. And, and then there's a whole lot of pit people, people that I look down on, you know, that are inferior to me in some perceived way. And it's so interesting, you know, when you... Because uh, she's someone that by, most of the time she felt kind of mostly like a failure in life, you know, like that she wasn't making it and she was blowing her life. But she had a huge slew of pit people under her, you know. Oh, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. I don't go after matters too great, too difficult. She, where does that inner noise come from? See, it comes because people, they're hope, they hope in the wrong things, don't they? they? We build these stairs of sand. We, we, we climb them, and, uh, and they, they make noise. In fact, you could, you could take this psalm, this little Psalm 131, and you could turn it right on its head, and you could create what we could call the anti-psalm. No, the anti-psalm. When you, when you create the anti-psalm, you understand exactly where all the inner noise 
comes from in people. All that bubbling, churning, rattling, shaking, confusion, emotional chaos and volatility. Listen to the opposite psalm. It's not, Lord, my heart is not proud. It would start out something like a self, right? I'm talking to myself, self. My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself, yes. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I do chase after things too great and too difficult for me. There's a whole lot of things I chase after. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. I'm like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless and demanding and worried. I scatter my hopes onto anything and anybody all the time. That's really, that's Psalm 131, just, just flip it, isn't it? And you, and, you, and you understand where the restless, noisy, driven, chaotic, frustrated, anxious, where all those things come from, doesn't it? It, uh, it all makes sense. And the psalm, just has, it has this wonderful sense that David, and then by implication to a far larger extent, Jesus Christ himself, the first verse, he is honestly reflecting on the fact that he is, it is Lord, you know, it is to you. And he knows himself that pride and haughtiness and ladders to nowhere, they aren't, they aren't controlling him. The middle verse is, a, is actually a wonderful description of how the change, we might say, how the change process actually works. It is an amazing image. It, uh, what he lays out there, surely I have composed and quieted my soul. It's got a very active sense. It's, it's almost as though he, it's, it's like when, when Jesus stilled the storm, you know, shh, be still, hush. It's like he's gotten a grip. He's taken himself in hand. He's, he's, he's plowed the, the rough ground and smoothed it off. I have composed and quieted my soul. He's knocked down the ladders. You know, they, aren't, they aren't where he's... They aren't, he's not spending his life climbing impossibilities from here out. Ladders knocked down. I've stilled, composed, and quieted my soul. And then one of these just... One of these delightful... Metaphors that just sings like a weaned child on his mother, like a weaned child on me is my soul. That's the literal translation. It's a very strong parallelism. It envisions your soul like a weaned child sitting in your lap. It's a, it's a really neat image because one of the things that, and the translations often fudge it, you know, because they, they, some of them even say like a nursing child on his mother's lap, you know, but that's not the image at all. It's a wean child. And, and, it, and what it's reflecting on is one of those amazing miracles of how God runs his universe. That at one point in time, before a child is weaned, if they're hungry, you put them on mother's lap and squall, fuss, root, bang, you know, upset, distress, anxiety, uh, you know, noise, right? Noise inside, noise outside, anxiety and upset. And then this amazing thing, two weeks later, they're successfully weaned. They're in the exact same place, sitting on mother's lap, and they're at peace. Assuming she's spooning in the pavlov, right? But, but the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the entire frame of reference of the child has changed. It is, a, it is a miraculous transformation that takes place in weaning. And it is a picture of this, of what the grace of the gospel does. We are weaned from these things that drive us crazy and by which we drive others crazy. So we're no longer rooting, banging, anxious, squalling. Wean child sitting on his mother at P.
peace in there. And then the last line of it gives, tells you where that comes from. It, you know, and here's the place where David slash Jesus, it moves out from being a glimpse into the inner life and it moves out into an invitation to all of us. Israel, hope in the Lord now and forever. Now, it's very general, isn't it? Very general. It's a very, you know, it's a compact psalm. And, and like any compact piece of scripture that speaks in generalities, it invites you, this is practical theology also, you know, invites you to fill in the blanks, invites you to add the details. What is the hope that you're invited to? Yeah, the, the psalm 131 doesn't tell you. A lot of other parts of scripture do. In fact, one of the places it does tell you is the psalm right, right before it. The other place where... Uh, that phrase is repeated as in Psalm 130. Israel, hope in the Lord. And Psalm 130 actually gives you many particular things in which to set your hopes. Solid alternatives to ladders of, to nowhere, to you know, stairs of sand. It, uh, Psalm 130 is not a psalm of peace. It's a psalm of outcry. Oh Lord, hear my voice. You know, out of the depths I cry to you. Listen to me. I'm struggling. So you might say Psalm 130 is part of the process by which you get to 131. I'm crying to you out of the depths. What are the, what is, where does one hope? What are the hopes that we're, where we're called to place? Oh, Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who would stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Well, there's one hope, isn't it? What an amazing hope, you know? Building ladders to nowhere is sin, actually. It's idolatry. It's, it's falsehood. It's... It's a completely miswired life. It's going the wrong direction. It's, it's heading in the broad way. It's going over the cliff. And if you, Lord, would mark iniquities, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you. Therefore, you're feared. So you're given something to hope in, something very tangible that meets you right at the place where you're cutting the nerve out of that inner noise, you know, the very thing that makes us noisy. How do you compose your soul? It's in part you... The ladder gets knocked down. There's a merciful Lord, a very tangible promise in which you hope. Lord, there is forgiveness with you. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope. There's another place you put your hopes. In his word. And this God who speaks, who has not left us in the dark about what he thinks. I put my hope in what you've said. My soul waits for the Lord. Another one of these great images. You know, The next Psalm 131 was this wean child. This is a watchman. More than watchmen for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, hope in the Lord. You're, you're looking for this one who's going to come. And then he just closes with a flood of promises. For with the Lord, there is loving kindness, steadfast love, you know, unfailing care, covenant, commitment. With him is an abundant redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is taking what's wrong and making it right. It's the fix-up of the universe. It's taking what's broken and making it repaired. It's taking what's deviant and perverted and making it straight. There's an abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It, uh, again, these, we're given right in the very context there things to hope for. And, and you're invited too to, you know, there's three or four. What are 30 or 40 others? You know, timely medicine for whatever the, the needs of the, of the moment. A um, couple closing comments. It, uh, that again have, have to do with how our, our theology, the, the way we work with Scripture, the way we make sense of Scripture. One of the things that is so important, these Psalms were written well, about 3,000 years ago. Right? There, and, and, the, and, the, and the New Testament gives us great warrant that as you read something like Psalm 131, 
that there is a call to enrich it, to update it, to, to, bring it to, the for, to bring it forward in time. And so we've done that a little bit already. I did that a, a minute ago. It's called a song of ascents of David. And one of the ways you enrich it, it is a song of ascent of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It also can become a song of ascent of you. You, you read the Psalms, multiple layers, as it were, don't you? You update it. It's a, and who is this Lord You know, that's at the beginning? Lord, he's the beginning and the end. Lord, so you're talking in his presence, and at the end, hope in him. Who is he? And this is that, uh, you know, that, that wonderful name that uh, Augustine, throughout his confessions, continually addresses God as, as him who is. Him who is. It's just such a great way to put it. It's the Yahweh, the Jehovah, the him who is. The third person of the I am that I am. The he is that he is. You know, it's, it's that God, him who is. And it's that him who is that the New Testament tells us is named Jesus. That Jesus is Lord. And he's received the name that is above all names. That the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongue confess. It's to the glory of God the Father. He is the Lord. And so you update it. It's, this, is a, this is something that you talk. It's not only a glimpse into Jesus' mind, it's a, it's a talking to Jesus from our mind as we, as we get it. And, and what is this uh, Israel, you know, the, at the end, Israel hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And you realize, well, that too, that's been, the, as, the, as, the, as the revelation of God goes forward, you know, I understand that those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago, you, the biblical, the, the, the redemptive history was part of what got spoken of. And Redemptive history that is that God works through time and it gets richer and richer and better and better. And one of the ways that it gets better and better is we can, you might say, fill it out there. It's not just Israel. It's, you think of all the other names of the children of God. Children of God. You know, sons and daughters of the Most High. It, uh, or, or what is the most common word for us as believers? It's not Christians. It's disciples. Disciples. And what's a disciple? Learners. People who used to erect ladders to nowhere and had noisy lives, becoming quiet. Disciple, changed, learning. Saints, beloved, chosen, elect from before the foundation of the world. All those things that that God addresses us, invites us to set our hopes on him. And even the now and forever. You know, when David wrote this, it wasn't as clear as it is now. There it's it's that general theme. The righteous will live by faith. You look to not just now, but forever. God will do it. But we, as on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we even make that phrase, we ratchet it up, you might say. It's, it's more particular. First Peter 1.13, you know, set your hopes fully upon the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will come for his bride. He's coming back for us. And uh, that, that living uh, hope that is there. How do we, well, I'll close with this. How, how do we, as people of God, how do we do, pra- our, how do we, practical theology is how you live, right? It's practical. It's living in a God-centered world. And how do we appropriate something like Psalm 131? How do you make this your own? And I'd like to give you two strategies on that. The one is what you might call, uh, you might put it this way, that, that Psalm 131 can be approached the same way we approach classical music. Classical music, you get it verbatim, right? You memorize it. You learn it. You practice it. You say it. You rehearse it. And you just 
you know, Lord, my heart is not proud and my eyes are not haughty and so forth, that, that to actually play the psalm like classical music, you know. And so there you are, you know. You wake up at night, or you wake up at early in the morning, and you are gripped with anxiety, and the noise machines are going off inside. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, and my eyes are not haughty. And you're able to, you know, maybe that noise machine is generating bitterness and hurt and regret, and, and it, the noise machine starts to get unplugged, right? Because that kind of noise is coming out of our pride and our judgmentalism. And, and I don't go after matters that are great or too difficult for me. And, and you realize all those anxieties and worrying about people or your kids or sickness or money or you know, whether you're loved. Or, and the noise machine gets unplugged. You're, you know, instead of chasing after impossibilities that are outside your control, the, the plug is pulled. Lord, I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child on its mother, my soul on me. Israel, child of God, hope in the Lord. It, see, getting it verbatim is letting, letting the scripture, you know, this practical theology from God, it's letting it, uh, it's letting it get in there and it's, it's like playing from a score, isn't it? There's also another way to think about the Psalms. And you might call it, this is, the, the scripture also intends us to play the Psalms like jazz, where it's improv, right? And there's, because there's all kinds of things about life that, they aren't the same every time. You know, very, little, very few parts of life are scripted, are they? Most of life you make up as you go along. Most of it is extemp... Life is mostly extemporaneous, isn't it? It's, it's on the fly. It's take one and no practice. You know? And the Psalms are intended to also be, to be... In that sense, they're not just classical music to memorize and get in there into the works. They're also meant to be models of just how we operate. Just what the inner music is, how we tend to think. That's part of what's going on in a passage like uh, Ephesians 5, 18, where it talks about speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making music in your heart to the Lord. See, it's, it, that's not a description of having a, a 24-hour day quiet time or just quoting, quoting a Bible verse all the time. It's, it's a description of a life lived the way the psalms live. David is a man after God's own heart, and he simply relates his life to his Lord and gives you a bunch of psalms that show you many of the different moods, climates, seasons, facets of that. The place where this comes through the most clearly of all is in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. It's a you know, part of what Paul is writing to us as, as a pastor, as someone who, who has our well-being, the joy of our soul on his heart. And, he, and, the, and the, the, the end of that, those three verses says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Boom. Yeah, it makes you perk up. Like, this is pretty important stuff. And what he says in the verses before, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I remember for a lot of years as a, as a, after I became a Christian, that verse would really, hound, would really pester me. It sounded like you almost had to become a monk. You had to... Or have some amazing quiet. I remember one friend, he'd set his beeper on his clock, so, and at every hour he'd try to pray for three minutes because you're supposed to rejoice always and pray without ceasing, give thanks. And it didn't last very long, as those resolves rarely do. You know, those resolves rarely do last long. But then it suddenly dawned on me that what that, those verses are is a kind of link into the whole book of Psalms saying, go and do likewise. Live that way. You know, live your life before God. 
And when there are hard things that happen, you pray. And when, there are, when you think about who God is, you rejoice. And when a good thing that God does, you give thanks. Just like the Psalms. You've know, you got 150 examples of rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Now go thou and do likewise. It's, a, it's a, an invitation, you might say, to, to play jazz, to just let the, what impro- improvises out of your heart, your life, whatever your life circumstances related to the one who loves you, related to your Lord, related to the one who will judge you, related to your only hope in the midst of suffering and affliction. The righteous will live by faith. And that faith gets expressed in the kinds of things the Psalms talk about. Uh, We looked at one example that certainly can play in our lives and 149 other examples. And then you're meant to live your life as a living example of such Psalms playing. Well, we got some time to interact and discuss and Q&A, comment, uh, all this fair game. I guess you want to, some people might want to hand in. Yeah, so if you would like just to take a few minutes. Uh... Yeah, well, some people are writing. Others want to just uh, throw something out on the table verbally. Oh, you want, which would you prefer? Shall I read it? Okay. Is practical theology basically mystical? That's a very good question. Um, that's one of those that I, I would say, well, yes and no, depending how you define the term. It, it's completely mystical in the sense that living life the way we're supposed to is living it in terms of someone we have never seen, right? We live in, as Christians, we live in terms of invisibilities. Though you have not seen him, you love him, right? And there's 150 Psalms that are someone having a relationship with someone they are not looking at, right? Because they cannot see him. So in that, in that more general sense of mystical, yes and amen. The other sense of mystical, though, which is a, a, more as a sense of uh, you kind of step out of the real world and you're in a, a world of sort of mis- mystical experiences and beatific visions and a lot of stuff you might find in the people in church history are called the mystics. I, I tend to say... No, I don't think that has much of a place for it. it uh, it's so interesting in, in the Bible. One, how, how every day it is. You know, like all these Psalms, which are the height of mystery in the first sense, they're all about, you know, your enemies are out to get you and your friend betrayed you and you're sick and it hurts and you need help and, God, and people are, are slandering you and where are you going to find refuge? It's very every day, which completely makes sense given... Our worldview, we believe God created a real world. He created what's really there. He runs real history. And so it makes all the sense in the world that politics and economics and health and medicine and kids and seasons and weather and sickness and death, that's what life's about. That's how God made it. And so that's what practical theology is about. That's what faith is about. Um, I think the way you're using it is what was my first point, that there's an invisible reality, you know. Yeah. We walk by faith, not sight. We, I mean, we live in terms of what is off stage, you might say. And, but it's like and, the yeah, you're asking a question we could answer at many levels. Um, yeah. I mean, one, I'll take one stab and you could say 20 other things. Um, I think one of the characteristics of evangelicalism as a movement is it has tended to be activistic, it is a doers, and it is about doing and knowing by and large. And, 
and thus has tended at certain times to miss out on God is meant to be known, you know, and you don't see him and and the 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 sorts of things that that Psalm 131 just richly lays out about a, a heart that gets, ends up getting stilled before the face of God, that is often a, a piece that gets fairly short shrift. If our main concern is we got to get one more piece of truth into the cognitive apparatus and one more activity into the schedule, you do tend to lose the more experiential, emotive, expressive, relational parts. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson's uh, uh, book on uh, the Christian life has got a wonderful preface by J.I. Packer, which says the Christian life is a three-legged stool. It's a stool of, of truth and doctrine. That's one leg. It's a stool of action. There's a job to be done. And it's a stool of experience. And it's a leg of experience that there's a God to be known and loved and delighted in and, 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 and such. And, and he talks about how, you know, any three-legged stool, you, you lose one of the legs, you're in big trouble. And uh, it's one, just one of those ways to, in a sense, test ourselves. Again, that's one of those ways where um, God's school seems to be suffering. It's not to say there aren't some sweet things on the table, but most of us, if we just get our way all the time, we're just happy as clams to be totally self-centered. <laughs> and you, know, you think about it, like if, if, if you never had a traffic jam and you never had a medical crisis and you always had enough money, and you were, you know, it's, you just cruise. You get a traffic jam and you find out what you're made of. You know, that doesn't say, Lord, please, like, help me get to my appointments on time. Or, you know, you can certainly pray that God would make the way smooth. But since God is more concerned about that I've become a person of peace than get to all my appointments on time, he'll arrange just enough traffic jams to, to do what needs to be done. And, uh, and I'm, I'm making light of it, but obviously the, sometimes it's not just traffic jams. It's very devastating kinds of things. Which, And that's one of the ways where I think it's so helpful to think of the Bible as practical theology because it's always written with an eye to how we live and how we think and how we feel and how we experience and whether we know God and whether we're you know, setting up ladders to nowhere. And uh, No accident that one of the favorite verses for the Reformation it was Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Things that are revealed belong to us and our children, that we may do all the words of this law. And in that, in that sentence, doing the words of this law is not legalism. The law includes knowing the Lord. You know, the law in the sense of the five books is the revelation of God. And the revelation, at least in the beginning form, of what it meant to know him and love him and trust him and, and so forth. So, yeah, God has revealed himself very intentionally under capturing our hearts for himself and changing the way we live. So. Yes? Is there at a point where the Sure. You know, there's, there, there are a lot of different kinds of things one could point to, and I, I, I wouldn't want any of them to be made as the be-all, end-all, because then you tend to reduce it to formulaic kinds of things. But what you've suggested is certainly a very important part, that if you tend to be noisy and busy... It makes all the sense in the world that the simple act of carving away time and, and with, a, with a goal. I mean, perhaps it would be, you know, out of humility, recognizing, Lord, I just tend to run like a rat in a maze and rat in a, on a you know, hamster wheel and a hamster on a hamster wheel. And, and um, you have said that I am to cast my cares upon you because you care for me. And Lord, I don't 
live that way. I must not be doing that. Because I sure seem to be juggling a lot of plates. And I sure seem to not very often realize that you care for me. And, it, and obviously that, in some level, that does take, I need some time to do it. You know, to carve that out where I can stop and think. I remember one of the most helpful things for me at a time when I was running exactly the way you described it, you know, 11 more responsibilities than a human being is meant to have kind of thing. And I had, I had my, I decided that every morning I would go to, to Philippians 4, which is be anxious for nothing. But here's how I started my time with the Lord. I started by writing down what I was anxious about. It was really neat. Because then, then one of the effects of that was it was always a finite list. You know, you're juggling what seems like a thousand plates, but it's really 11. You just keep juggling them, the same 11, and it never gets any better. And then, and then the, that passage, so the first thing I'd do is I'd, I would write down what I was anxious about. And then I would look at, well, and who is God? And even right there in Philippians 4, it it says two, it doesn't say a lot, but it says two, two or three very crucial things. One was a, it was a little clause that I must, have, I must have missed it for the first 10 years I was a Christian. The Lord is near. It's interesting. That's, that's the end of verse 5, right before verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. And you realize, at the heart of anxiety is I don't realize that anyone's near. It's just me and my problems and responsibilities going at it mano a mano, you know, or... Or a woman, or a woman, I guess is whatever the way you'd put it. I mean, it's like the Lord is near, so I'm not alone. And and uh, or later it says that and God will be with you, in verse nine. And in between is a promise that He will give us a peace that is incomprehensible, mystical, you know, in the best sense of the word. Um, the, and then so I, so I think about where I was anxious about it. Who is the Lord? Stop and think that through, and then actually do what verse six says to. Bring your requests of thanksgiving. I'd pray through those 11 things. And then the way I, t- I, t- I turn it then into an action plan. It's like at the end, verses, by the time you get to verses 8 and 9, Paul says, tells you where to park your mind and what to do. He says, you know, whatever things are true and so forth, think on these things. And, and then he says, what you've seen in me, the way you've seen me live, you also do. And I would use that in a sense as, as kind of the planning part of the day. And one of the things that was so interesting in, in doing that at that point of, of a lot of pressure in my life was of those 11 things, invariably, a half dozen of them would never be my responsibility. They were things too difficult and too great for me. I would never control them. You think about some of the, the things that get people worry about, like, will I get Alzheimer's? Will, will, will we go broke? You know? Will some tragedy happen to my kids? Will I flunk out of school? You know, will will tra- we have zero control over a lot of those things that do tend to get on the list? And so then being able to truly leave those, then say there's five left, and it's after clearing your mind through repentance and faith and about from anxiety into and coming into a place of faith and knowing the Lord, it's pretty clear that two of them are today's job. And three of them are tomorrow or next week. Or, and, and then one of the true things that you're, where you park your mind is, if I go back to the things that are never my responsibility or are next week's, I need to immediately repent you know, and, and remember the Lord is near and that he has called me to whatever my hand finds to do, to do it with all my might. And there's a, a life today 
that I'm meant to give myself to, whether I get Alzheimer's you know, later or not, whether my children die or they don't die. I'm called to live my life today to his glory. And so that was very freeing. So yes, spending time is one key. Um, I'd say another di- very different way of looking at it would not be through structure, but think of it through process. Uh, what's making me noisy? You know, take, take Psalm 131, verse 1, and ask myself, you know, where am I trying, going after matters too great and too difficult for me? What am I trying to control that is uncontrollable? What am I aspiring to that's vain? And then that leads to a very, con- there's a very definite intelligent repentance process that I can lay those things down. I repent, I seek mercy, I get reoriented to God. Now, that's certainly that self-analysis, self-understanding biblically is important. I would also uh, throw in, um, and this, this would be more mystical as we're, we've been using the word tonight, that there are many times where that I just simply say, for some reason, I actually <coughs> called on the Lord. And it wasn't because I had a quiet time, it wasn't because I had done some big Bible studies, but I called on him, I needed him, I did what I'm supposed, I lived, the righteous lived by faith. And in that sense, that's more of a qualitative call than a quantitative one. You know, and you can have quiet time until you're, you know, you go blue and you don't ever necessarily actually call on the Lord and actually know him and trust him and love him and give your cares to him and delight in him and, and seek him. And you know, I suppose if you actually had to pick one off the list, you'd say take the qualitative, you know, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks. You take the doing it as the, as the point of it all. And the analytic part and the structured parts would be subsets there. Um, there's going to be other things. We're not meant to grow alone. I've given more individualistic kinds of examples. But obviously, people are a huge help. Uh, faith is catching. Uh, how many times have we been in, you know, you walk into church, your mind is about as spiritual as a stone. And... The opening hymn, you, it's like you, you wake up. It's like, there's a God. You know, I love him. I, you know, so corporate worship and hearing the word of God preached and, and being with people who love him. And, or you're, you're at the Lord's Supper and you've been really depressed. You know, let's say it's this, a Sunday you're having the Lord's Supper and you're bummed out about your life and carrying a thousand burdens around. You feel like a failure. And then the Lord's Supper, you realize, you know, this is for people like me. <laughs> Jesus loved me. He he shed his blood for me, and he, body, his body was broken, and I can taste it. And how good God is that he'd actually condescend. He would step into my world so personally that I can taste it with taste buds. You know that. So corporate resources, I mean, all those things of the means of grace are all given that we would learn to turn off the noise machine and, and set our hopes in the Lord. Another written one came up here. Why is it that, oh, okay. Why is it that even though we all read and study the same Bible, there are so many interpretations, which is evident in the many denominations we now have? That's, a, again, a very good question. Uh, maybe there's going to be, you're going to get Claire Davis to come in here and really answer that question. So you're getting the very junior version, uh, sort of invitation to speculate. So take it with that grain of salt. Um, let me come at that from a, from a number of different angles. One is, there are some ways where all the denominations, it's not that bad a thing. 
Because many of their origins are, for example, in this country, the origins are because there's been many immigrants. So the gospel has incarnated into different cultures and it just has taken different forms. And so the fact that you've got a different form of Christianity that's arisen in a, you know, in a Dutch context or in a Scottish context or in a, you know, an Eastern European context or whatever, uh, an Asian context, those aren't in and of themselves bad. God's kingdom. I remember Harvey Kahn used to say that uh, he thought that when the Bible says that every nation, tribe, tongue, and people had, is coming to the Lord, that even in heaven there will be nation, tribes, tongues, and peoples. And it, that makes sense, you know. If God created diversity, he's not going to just eliminate diversity and kind of homogenize us all at the end. So some of that is just the diversity of nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. It, uh, some of that can be very helpful, even in a very practical way where, uh, you know, you get a, there are believers who uh, you would really want them to go to St. John's Episcopal Church in Huntington Valley. And another believer, you would want them to go to Calvary Church across the street. And another believer, you'd want them to go to New Life Church in Glenside because they're, they have very different corporate personalities. They'll tend to reach and, and, and touch and be a, a home for a different kind of people. And uh, so that part of it's all good. The, uh, what's the bad part? bad part is pride and divisiveness and self-righteousness and thinking that the kingdom began and end with my particular little group. So that, that kind of sectarianism just reads straight off of the works of the flesh. It's called factions. And so that part, you know, why do you have so many denominations? That part is just sin. People, and you look at many of the conflicts in church history, and it is a tale of pride and I want my way. And we don't really differ about anything very significant. But I'd rather be in charge than you are. So I'm going to start something different. You know, that's clearly a major, major factor there. Um, that is why there's so many. And ah, I'll give you two other sub, sub comments on this. We all read and study the same Bible with so many interpretations. That the Bible is a hard book to understand, isn't it? In fact, the Bible itself says that of itself uh, a couple of ways. One is that famous passage in Peter where he says, our dear brother Paul said all these wonderful things, of which there are some things very hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people have twisted to their own destruction. Um, but he's recognizing that Paul is not always completely comprehensible. Uh, you know, you can, I, I'm sure you have this experience as I do. How many times have I read Romans since I've been a Christian? But I can pick it up again and get along about midway through chapter two, and it's like, do I even get this at all? <laughs> you know? This is really hard to understand. Lord, give me light. It, uh, or that, let alone take a thing like a book like Judges. Oh my goodness, you know, you are just completely Song of Deborah. You know, it is. It is so. It's just alien to us. It's very hard to understand. So it's no wonder that where things are obscure, people will tend to, you know, pull different stuff out of it. The other. I'll, I'll end with a positive note, though. It. Uh, I think that. God's kingdom often is in, is in a certain way invisible to the history books and newspapers. You know? So even though we've got a zillion denominations, it is amazing how much cooperativity there really is once you get down to the grassroots among believers. So you will find staunch you know, intellectual OPC in the suburbs people having wonderful fellowship with radical Pentecostal, you know, 
you know, drive the demon out of the next you know, seat, Pentecostals from the inner city, and they will somehow find a delightful common ground. Now, they have genuine differences theologically that are, that are worth hammering out, you know, that, and one may be right on one issue and one right on another, and it's worth, in an atmosphere of charity and respect, to, you know, have a go-around about a thing or two now and again on that. But there are also this, there's a sense that the, the perception of diversity doesn't quite capture that there's often a more of a grassroots unity than meets the eye. Um, you know, for example, I work at CCF. We have Baptists and Presbyterians. We have differences of eschatology in terms of our view of the timetable. But those things which have historically actually led to denominations are actually points of humor, by and large, because there's this 99% that we have just so radically in common, and it happens to be the most important 99%. And so things like that, I mean, I, I am a Presbyterian, and it's not by accident. It's by conviction. You know, I think Presbyterians are right. You know? <laughs> On the other hand, you know, that doesn't mean that someone who's a Baptist or someone who's a, you know, a, a sane charismatic or something like that, that I, that I have to think, oh, this 99% of what we have in common, we can't talk about that. We have to argue about this one thing we differ in. Yeah, that would be our pride and factionalism. And I've sometimes thought, this is, I'll end with this, this is a, a wholly speculative thing, not from the Bible, but I've sometimes thought that God left some things vague to test us. You know? And I think some of the things like eschatological timetables, you know, church government, some of these sorts of things, he left it just enough murky to test us whether we would be people of charity and humility or whether we'd be arrogant and divisive. And uh, keep us on our toes, make sure that, you know, that well, after all, how does Ephesians 4 begin, which is the great chapter on the church? with all humility and lowly-mindedness, with patience, which means you've got to put up with something, forbearing each other in love. And that's just the fundamental attitude that gets the whole thing rolling. So he's left stuff there that uh, will force us to learn forbearance and patience and such. So. I just want to say one thing. Unfortunately, there's a lot of denominations that use other information besides Bible. There's that. Yeah, there, I, I forgot that. You know, when you... There is heresy and error and bogus stuff so sure uh, sure i left out the most obvious so yeah there's a a biblical christ-centered gospel focus yeah do you want me to close in prayer christine okay lord thank you so much you are a great great king you are you are worth knowing you are worth the loss of all else and we desire that our lives would deeply, thoroughly embrace you, love you, know you, be at peace in you. And in this particular example we've looked at tonight, Lord, where we tend to get noisy and agitated and fearful, fretful, depressed, we, we go after things that we will never be able to control and we churn on them and we spin plates in the air. It is our desire that you would quiet us and you would teach us to be quiet and to love you and know you. And we would live for something that is bigger, than, than even death itself, that we would, in fact, live for the day when Christ returns. And that wouldn't just be something remote and theoretical, that, that you would be pleased to burn that at the very center of who we are, that we would look forward to seeing you face to face, and the race is run, and we've been made like you, and we'll have joy forever, and every cause of stumbling is removed, and every tear is wiped away, 
Give us such conviction, Lord. Let us live in terms of what we do not see with passion and simplicity to the praise of your glory. Amen.